Well, good morning, church. It has been a busy week around here at Anderson Hills in our semi-annual rummage sale. I want to say thank you to everyone who made that possible. For those of you that donated, for those of you that spent countless hours here this week receiving items to be sold, pricing items to be sold, organizing items to be sold, for those of you that gave many hours, for those of you that came and shopped I want to say thank you. The good news is that we have raised more than $13,000 for missions. All of that money goes to help people um, through mission projects um, in the name and for the sake of Jesus. So thank you, um, Anderson Hills, for your faithfulness. Well, today we're kind of pulling into port, so to speak, with our sermon series on Romans. For eight weeks, we've been metaphorically traveling on a ship with Paul from the outer reaches of the Roman Empire all the way to the capital city itself of Rome. We've discovered that every person has a sinful nature and that we all stand in need of a Savior. We've learned that God's law, while good and right in itself, actually serve to show us just how impossible it is to keep every aspect of the law. And so the only way that we can be made righteous is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. We've explored how the Spirit gives life when we live by the Spirit and in the Spirit rather than by our own sinful nature. We've seen how it was the role of Israel from the very beginning to point people to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and that Israel too will be saved through faith in Jesus. Paul has shown us that we are to live our lives as though they are living sacrifices to God, to bring God glory and praise. And Paul offered us some very practical rules by which to live. And so now we've arrived here at the final three chapters of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And it is here that he divulges two reasons for writing this letter. First, there are some practical difficulties that are going on among the Christians in Rome, and we're going to explore those today. And second, Paul's mission is actually to take the gospel to the very furthest reaches of the western end of the empire, to Spain. And Rome is to be a stop along his way. He wants to stop there to encourage the church in Rome. And he wants to elicit and gain their support in prayer on his mission to Spain. Paul begins writing about some of the issues that are dividing the church in Rome. You see, the Christians there come from very different backgrounds, different cultural upbringings, different social classes, different ethnicities. And they are not seeing eye to eye. Paul writes this section of the book because there's a real need for unity among the Christians in Rome, lest the church might fall apart. Paul begins chapter 14 in this way, and I invite you to open your Bible if you brought it with you today or open it up on your app and follow along. Romans 14 beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, except the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. 
One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. You might remember that throughout the book of Romans, Paul has written about both Jewish and Gentile converts to Christianity. The Jewish Christians brought with them all of their background and love for many of the laws of Judaism because it was a part of their upbringing. I mean, think about it. A person doesn't just forget about so many formative things in their life overnight, right? And Paul also wrote about Gentile converts to Christianity who had not been raised under Judaism, but had been raised in a very pagan culture with lots of gods and goddesses and very different rules about what was right and what was wrong. Christians who had formerly been Jewish had been taught to obey the laws of the Torah. Now there were 613 laws in the Torah. That's a lot of laws. And a lot of those laws dealt with how to deal with food. I mean, there were laws about which animals were clean or unclean to eat. There were some very specific laws about how food had to be prepared. And there were even laws which dictated who you could eat with and who you couldn't. All of these laws were designed to set God's people apart, God's people Israel, and to show their devotion to God. Now, Rome was not steeped in any of these traditions at all, and the Gentiles who lived there, they worshipped lots of different gods. Part of the worship of these many gods included sacrificing animals in pagan temples. And after the animal sacrifice was made in honor of the god, a small portion of it was burned in a ritual. And all the rest of the meat was just sent on down to the marketplace. And so you can imagine when one went to the butcher shop in the market, a person had no way of knowing if the meat that they were buying had been sacrificed to a god as part of a pagan ritual or not. And so for a Jewish Christian who had been raised to avoid all kinds of idol worship and who had been taught to be very careful of how to prepare meat in a kosher way, they pretty much had to give up eating meat altogether or risk breaking one of the laws that they'd been taught to follow. Remember, letting go of things ingrained in you while growing up is not an easy thing to do. Now, meanwhile, for some Gentile Christians who had been raised to worship all kinds of different gods and goddesses, they may have chosen to avoid any kind of meat that might have been sacrificed to an idol because maybe they didn't want to risk reverting to their former pagan lifestyle now that they had found Jesus Christ and he was the, their Lord and Savior. But now, in this letter, Paul is writing both to both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians 
about how they are supposed to be united by their faith in Jesus. I mean, both groups confess allegiance to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and this makes them part of the same family. And so they have a duty to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ to show their unity to Christ. And so Paul writes this part of the letter to help them understand how to live together. You see, the divisions that were happening in the church in Rome may not have gone straight down the middle along an ethnic fault line, so to speak. The weak ones that Paul refers to are not necessarily only the Jewish Christians, and the strong ones are not necessarily only the Gentile Christians. Paul himself is a Jewish Christian, and he would certainly have classified himself as one of the strong. He would have had no problem eating meat even if it had been sacrificed as in part of a ritual because he knew that Christ had set them free from the law. So there might be both strong and weak Jewish Christians, and there might be both strong and weak Gentile Christians. Paul is writing to insist that people from both sides should learn to live together and especially to worship together. We are to accept one another even in our differences, for it is the Lord who is the judge over all of us. Christians today, including all of us here at Anderson Hills, need to cultivate this same attitude of acceptance. For this is a church where we are growing in Christ, but all of us are still on a journey. Not one of us has arrived at the finish line yet. And so which kind of church do you want to be a part of? Which kind of church do you think attracts people? One where you are judged for every little thing that you do? or one where you are loved and accepted. A church where everyone is loved and accepted is a church that is going to grow. But let's face it, it takes effort. It doesn't just happen on its own. It takes work to love other people. Remember, last week Mark Rowland told us that love isn't a warm, fuzzy feeling. Love is a commitment. It is a decision. It is an action that you take to love other people no matter what. Each of us has been accepted in Christ Jesus, and he did this before any of us ever deserved to be loved. Remember, Paul told us way back in Romans chapter 4 that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ loves us so much, and he died for all people even before we were very lovable at all. And so as followers of Christ, we are called to do the same. We want Anderson Hills to be known as the church that accepts other people unconditionally. We believe that God can use that kind of church to spark a revival, to change the spiritual climate of Anderson Township, of Cincinnati, indeed of the entire world. In verses 1 through 4, Paul is not passing judgment on the weak or the strong. He sees the issue of whether or not one chooses to eat meat or not as a disputable matter. In some other translations of the Bible, that word is rendered as the word opinion. Paul says that we are not to quarrel over disputable matters or opinions. 
Some things are right because the Bible says they are right. And other things are wrong because the Bible says they are wrong. But some things the Bible doesn't speak of. And these are the gray areas. These are the matters of conscience. For example, the Bible clearly promotes truth-telling and it clearly condemns lying. But is it ever right to tell just a little white lie in order to protect someone else's feelings to keep them from being hurt? Just think about how you might respond to a question like one of these. How do you like my new haircut? Or honey, does this dress make me look a little fat? I think you understand what I mean here. Some Christians believe the Bible forbids the use of alcohol, and others see that subject differently. There are some practices about right and wrong about which Christians can have differing opinions. And there are some beliefs about the faith upon which Christians can have differing opinions and still remain within the realm of orthodoxy. For example, not every Christian agrees on on how the rapture will take place or if predestination is a thing or if free will is or whether it's possible or not to lose one's salvation. But there are some other beliefs which are not disputable matters. They are not matters of opinion. They are not non-essential. These include such things as the deity of Jesus Christ or the Trinitarian nature of God or salvation by grace. These are essential beliefs as if one is to stand firm on the orthodox beliefs of the Christian faith. And Paul is clear about holding fast to these and avoiding people who would propose to do otherwise. In Romans chapter 16, verse 17, Paul writes, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and who put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. To to deny these essentials is to deny the faith. And here at Anderson Hills, we are teaching our small group leaders in in a class that we've recently created called CORE that helps us identify what beliefs are essential and what beliefs are non-essential. And then we're talking about how to talk about those in small groups without getting into an argument. I like the saying, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Paul adds to the topic of whether to eat meat or not a new topic that seemed to also be dividing the Christians in Rome, and that is which days were considered special and which ones were not. Beginning in verse 5, he writes, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord." For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? 
for we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Paul is probably referring here to the Jewish festival days in verse 5, and although he doesn't mention it specifically, he may also be talking about which day of the week is appropriate to celebrate the Sabbath, Saturday, which is the traditional Jewish Sabbath, or Sunday, which celebrates the Lord Jesus rising from the dead on the first day of the week, and which had become or was becoming the customary day for Christians to worship. Perhaps the Gentile Roman Christians have been looking down their noses on the non-Christian Jews in Rome, which necessitated Paul's writing chapters 9, 10, and 11, which we spoke about several weeks ago, demonstrating that Israel is God's chosen and that they will forever be bound to the covenant. And now, perhaps in these chapters, Paul is writing to the Gentile Roman Christians because they may have been begun to look down their noses at the Christians with Jewish origins who wanted to maintain some of the food taboos and other cultural markers that they'd grown up with. Paul makes the case that everyone should be convinced in their own mind what they need to do in these non-essential matters. He argues that if what you choose to do is done to the Lord, then there should be no cause for complaint. Each one must decide whether or not to eat meat and which days to call holy, and then offer it to God in thanksgiving and everything will be all right. Like the Romans, we must also have unity in these things which are essential and acceptance in the non-essentials. For the Roman church, it was over food and special days. For us, it might be what method of baptism is appropriate, sprinkling or immersion. Or it might be around our beliefs about Holy Communion. Is Christ present only spiritually or is he physically present also in the cup and the bread? Are these differences important? Sure they are. But are they essential to our salvation? No, they're not. I can be saved without ever having been baptized. I can go to heaven without ever having taken communion. Salvation is through faith in Christ alone. Nothing more nothing less. Paul then makes this point crystal clear. For a Christian, we no longer do anything for ourselves alone. Everything we do is for the Lord. When we profess our faith in Christ and are baptized, then we are united to one another in the church, and we call that the communion of saints. We are members of one another. We are a family, and we need each other. God made us to live in community. We need to belong. And when we are baptized, we belong to the church. We are members of the family of God under the lordship of Christ. Now, we don't always act like it, I know, because let's face it, relationships are difficult. Living in community is tough. And we don't become perfect the moment we are baptized, and so sometimes we get it wrong. We we are ugly, we're human. But as we grow in our Christian discipleship, we learn to live in love with one another, even as we deal with our differences. God uses the Christian community to sanctify us. 
and God uses us to help sanctify one another. So Paul goes on in verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in, an, in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Paul is telling us to stop putting our critical eyes on one another. Instead, if we must be critical about something, let us be critical of our own conduct. For we need to thoughtfully judge if our actions are going to put a stumbling block in the way of someone else's faith. For example, if a strong Christian didn't see any problem with eating whatever meat they wanted because Christ had set them free from any law against unclean food, yet another Christian chose to abstain from meat because of their past history of adhering to kosher food laws or because they wanted a clean break from their pagan past when they did eat meat that had been sacrificed to pagan gods. Then Paul says the strong Christian should not eat meat in front of that person out of love for them. For Christ died for all. This is a matter of making positive choices to avoid making life difficult for another person, particularly how the strong can avoid making life hard for the weak. Another example, you may feel like having a glass of wine or beer with your meal is perfectly acceptable. You allow the scripture of Christ turning water into wine or Paul counseling Timothy to take a little wine to inform your view. Yet if you are dining with a Christian for whom drinking is seen as not honoring the body, which is a temple of the Lord, or with a Christian for whom Jesus had set them free from the bondage of an addiction to alcohol, then you would avoid drinking in their presence in order not to put a stumbling block in the way of someone who Christ loves, whom you also love as a brother or sister in Christ, and for one for whom Christ died. We need to learn how to live in the tension of using good judgment while not being judgmental. Being non-judgmental doesn't mean that it's okay for people to do whatever they want or that doing the wrong thing will not have consequences, but it does call us to love people always. And loving people means we want what is best for them and that we are willing to impart wisdom to them so that their life might take an upward path. Every single one of us sins. We've learned that from Paul's writing in the Romans. And some of our sin is more visible than others. And some of our sins are more culturally acceptable than others. Some were more acceptable in Paul's day than they are today. Some of ours we don't think anything about that they would have been horrified over. 
None of that makes it right. But none of us has a right to judge anyone. For there is only one judge. And it isn't me. And I've got news for you. It's not you either. It's Jesus. Our job is to point people to Jesus, to his love, and to show them his love through us. In chapter 15, Paul drives this point home by pointing to Jesus. He says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our goal is to please, is not to please ourselves, but it is to please God and to please our neighbor so that we can build them up. Jesus didn't seek to please himself. Instead, he emptied himself. He took all the insults and punishment that should have rightfully been ours, and he bore it himself. Jesus identified with many who were considered weak in his day, outcasts, the possessed, the ill, the wayward, prostitutes, lepers, tax collectors, and sinners. He healed, he taught, and he sent many people forth to sin no more. He encouraged and built up a community of followers wherever he went. Paul gave us some sound advice in chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. It is practically a benediction or a blessing. And here's what will happen if we follow Paul's word. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One mind, one voice. We can find unity even in our diversity. A church that has unity is a church that God can bless. A church that has unity in a world with so much disunity shows that there is another kingdom, a kingdom that, that it is not of this world, whose king is the one true king. A church that can share table fellowship with all people, whether they are weak or strong, and can worship with all believers points to the one, Jesus who unifies us in his life, death, and resurrection. And so how are you doing on Paul's teaching from Jesus on unity? Can you allow the love of God to melt your heart? Can you reach out and express a welcome to someone who is different from you? Can you reach out and extend a warm Anderson Hills welcome to those who are joining our community of fellowship as members today? Can all of us together help make this an authentic community of faith where we can all be loved, accepted, and built up into the strong body of our Lord Jesus Christ? Will you pray with me?
precious Lord Jesus, we hear your prayer for the church that we would be one. And we hear Paul's words from you that he wrote to the Romans so long ago but are still written for us today to be bound together in unity, to hold us together by the things that are essential to our faith and to love one another through the things that are not essential. Lord, build us up into a strong body, first beginning with us individually that we might reflect your love to each other and then collectively as your church of Anderson Hills and as the church worldwide to the end that we would draw all people to you. We pray this in your name and for your sake. And all God's people said, amen.